I just think this whole thing of where we're trying to list the women and what their relationships are is an interesting part of the whole issue of how women are often used in epic fantasy. Welcome to Cabbages and Kings. I'm your host, Jonah Sutton-Morse. With this episode, Kate Elliott joins A Fish Trap and me to discuss the women of Grace of Kings. Those of you who've read the book probably remember that despite the large cast, there are few women early on, and they're generally defined by their relationships with men. Later, more women appear. I remember being on Twitter as people read Grace of Kings, and the frequent chorus from those of us who'd finished the book to those who were wavering partway through was, Wait for again! Wait for again! In this episode, you're going to hear us talking about a book we love, an aspect of the book that we didn't always love, and the various ways that we responded to different women in Grace of Kings. The conversation is rooted in the book, but it is also a snapshot of the many ways that readers navigate their relationship with problematic faves and the presence or absence of women in epic fantasy. I'm going to start with Kate Elliott, just after we had refreshed our memory and cataloged the women of Grace of Kings. I need to start what I'm about to say, because it's going to sound okay. critical. First of all, I love this book. Yes. I loved this book, and I can't wait to read the second one. I think it is an incredible piece of work, brilliantly written, brilliantly conceived, and I adored it. And I actually hit a point about a third of the way in, and I had no idea what to expect. And about a third of the way in, I got in, and I said to myself, there's like two women in this book. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> at a third of the way in, there are only two women in this book. And, and two uh-huh. things that I'll talk about later had kind of irritated me. And I, I sat there for a minute and I said, normally, normally when I read a, an epic fantasy and I'm a third of the way in and there's only two women and they're minor characters and one of them's whole story seems to revolve around sex, right? And beauty. I'm done. The book's over. And I sat there and I thought, but you know what? I love this book so much that there could never be any more women in this book. And I would still love it because I can love things just because I enjoy them. They don't have to fit whatever my thing is. And so I'm just going to love this like I've loved so many things across my life that had almost no women in them. Yeah. You know, I love the first Star Wars film, and it has Carrie Fisher, who's phenomenal. And she's like the only um, one, right? <laughs> she is the only one. Well, no, I think the, the aunt is there briefly, you know. Oh, mm-hmm. that's right. And in the second one, I think there's like the senator who speaks a line or something. Maybe she's in the third one. But having said that, what's interesting to me about about this list we're making is that we are identifying all these women as, according to how they fit the men's stories, whereas the yes. men we identify them as by their stories. Yeah, yeah. Well, the the counterpart to that is I got a third of the way through the story and hit a certain chapter and said to myself, this story has so much of what I have always wanted to read but couldn't because most of the the stories that have this sort of feeling haven't been translated into English. So I either have to wait for somebody to to post it so that I can read it very slowly or for it to be made into a television show. The right. Chu Han contention just is not something that you see in Western media a lot. And so I was so loving getting to be able to read Somebody who's who's in dialogue with that history, that what would have usually have been a completely do not finish point for me, I was just like, you know what, we're just going to skip this chapter. This chapter just doesn't exist, because otherwise it would have been a DNF. But the rest of the story, yes, I mean, I wouldn't have talked for so many hours with Jonah <laughs> if, if this were not a story that entranced me in a hundred other ways. 
Have both of you seen Red Cliff, the film Red Cliff? I have not. Yes. I love that film. I love it. And so, in a way, it, it, I mean, totally agree with what you're saying. It, this book is in dialogue with that tradition. And that tradition has this element in it. And so yes. what was interesting to me is that, is that Ken, then at the end, and, and we'll talk about this more at length, but at the end, because he set up this tradition in which women are very minor characters and they have very set piece roles that are always in relationship to the men. And then suddenly at the end, he kind of blows that up. And it wouldn't have, it, it, this is the irony is it wouldn't have worked as well if he hadn't adhered to that expectation and that tradition through so much of the book. Yeah, but at the same time, it's if he had not been telling a story with which I was already really familiar, I don't think I would have. If it had been, say, for instance, a retelling of the Odyssey or one of the Greek myths, I think I probably would have made it a third of way through the book and said, I have found the cure for insomnia. It was the dialogue with the history that I already knew that got me through the parts where normally I would be like, you know what, I don't, life is too short to put up with having women shoved to the background. That requires a great deal of trust in in the text to be able to say, I will wait it out and see if you're going to turn this around. Because 99 times out of 100, the books never turn it around and the text never even seems to realize that it needs to be turned around. Mm-hmm. It speaks to to the text's authoritative storytelling voice that I kept reading. There, you know, uh, this is so fascinating. What you're saying is so fascinating to me. So first of all, that element of trust. It's really important to point that out. You are, I think you're absolutely right about that. And at a third of the way in, I trusted, I trusted the story to, to be a story that would have things in it that would interest me, whether or not women were included. Because again, I'm, I'm old enough that I'm so used to loving stories that had no women in them. I mean, I love Lord of the Rings. How many women are in Lord of the Rings, right? So uh, (laughs) expectations have gotten, I'm now less patient. I mean, I think as, as all three of us are now about stories that don't include women now, but sometimes I'll read something and I'll say, you know what? I, I, you know, so I trusted him. I also know people who did read the first third and say, I'm done with this. Mm-hmm. I know people yeah. who stopped reading because, because of that issue. But I wanted to go back to something else you said. You said that you felt you con- were able to continue because you were familiar with the tradition. Yeah. And I yeah. was able, if this had been a story set in a medieval Europe, I would have stopped at that point. But because I, I knew enough of this tradition from, you know, watching films and reading, you know, some of Dream of, I've read like three-fifths of Dream of Red Mansions. I've read a little bit of The Three Kingdoms. Mm-hmm. You know, yes. I read enough of it so that it was its it was the fact that it was something new for me, that the landscape was new for me, and that I could kind of accept that. That was why I kept reading, because there was new stuff for me in it. Yeah. But if it, had been, if it had been the medieval stuff, I would have been out. So we've talked about the strength of the narrative voice and many of the other appeals of the book that made us fall in love, even as the opening was so devoid of women. Now we're going to turn to Kokomi, the beautiful queen who aspires to lead her people and is advised by the goddess to do so with her sex appeal. Sometimes I would rather not be on the page at all than see myself on the page done wrong. And I did get to that point with with Grace of Kings where I was thinking, you know what? <laughs> if, you, if you can't do women right, just don't try. Just stop. 
And and that's that's a weird kind of position to be in as a reader where you would rather take erasure over yet another Oh, look, she's using her sex and beauty in order to get ahead. Who thinks this is good? Who think, you know, I'm just like, no, just don't. And, and I think that was the one point of irritation because it felt like it was pandering to that sort of expectation that that was, if, if a woman was going to show up and get any sort of airtime at all, then that was one of the four things she had to fit into. You're talking about Kikomi, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You know what? Do you want to know that the two things that irritated I, I had very mixed feelings about Kikomi because I had very much similar to your feeling about that. It's like, why? Why is this what we're getting? <laughs> and then because I love the book so much. If I love a book a lot, of course, don't we all do this? That we, yeah. we like make excuses and find, I don't know, not, mm-hmm. it's not even excuses. We say, well, hey, you know, we can make it like, like if, you know, if my friend says this offensive thing, then I'll figure out some way to say, well, it wasn't so bad. But if someone I don't like says it, then like, oh my gosh, I got to like, you know, drop a piano on them. Right. Um, so we all do. I, I don't know. Maybe you guys are not like this. But, oh, no. Yeah. This is why I don't read. Like if I meet someone and I really don't like them, I will never read a book by them because I can't give them a fair shake. And I know that about myself as a reader. So I just accept that that's how it is. You know, I'm, I'm judgmental and subjective. So, so I have to Comey, but then he did that thing with it. And then I thought, well, you know what? I think he's trying to show that this limited sphere she has, right? You can hear my brain tick in the, the rational state. The limited sphere she has, she's trying to make the same statement that the young prince does when he immolates himself. Mm-hmm. And then at the same time, she's trying to protect her country. And this is the only way she knows how to do it. There is one thing I'd like to explain about what in particular, actually, because Kakomi is very textbook. She's, you know, we've read her in a thousand other books, but there was a maneuver that the text does that was the specific part that made me want to just start throwing things. It's when she first meets the goddess. She's been introduced as somebody who's like, I can do this. I can take care of things. I can be more than what everybody expects me to, even if they're disappointed that I'm not a boy. And, and so you've got this emphasis that she's willing to go beyond that. And I'm like, okay, this is pretty standard. But it's the maneuver when the goddess meets her that feels kind of like one big fucking lampshade where the author says, hey, by the way, I am going to maneuver this character into the same end result that you would have had anyway, but I'm going to try and be slick about it. And that is what actually pissed me off the most. It was not that you have a stereotypical character who could have been stereotypical coming to a stereotypical end. It was this little interlude with the goddess where you have a character saying, I want to be more. I want to lead these people right. And the goddess is like, oh, no, no, no. You know what would be really, really good is if you used your sex appeal. And then the character goes, oh, my goodness, you're so right. And I'm like, what the hell? What the hell am I reading here? And that in particular, it felt like the text was well aware of the fact that it was contorting things to reach a specific end, but it treated me like an idiot in the course of doing it. And so that was actually the part, not the rest of Kokomi, but that particular discussion that made me feel like, oh, God, just be honest. Just say that you wanted her as a plot device to die. Is that does the, the Kikomi incident comes very soon after with the prince who immolates himself. Am I correct about that? Because I felt like it was an echo of that. These are people trying to salvage what they can of their kingdoms or their their places they rule and are responsible for. Mm -hmm. And so I felt like it was almost written as 
part of that same discussion about what must a responsible ruler do? What is their duty? And in both those cases, the end result is, is that they must die in order to protect their people. Right. But then the choices that are made, how they each get to go are... Yes. Yeah. So based on their sex organs instead of, I mean, really what I got to about the halfway point of the book was I just flipped the genders. In my head, Kakomi became male and the young prince who emoliates himself became female. That was all I needed. I just wanted to see something other than girl uses her sex. I don't think it would have changed anything. Otherwise, you would have still had the reflection, but we wouldn't have been put through the same thing. The goddess's speech is is very explicitly that because she says, you know, these are the labels men have put on women. You speak as though you despise them, but you're parroting the words and judgments of historians. Think of the hero who played with the hearts of Rapa and Kana, who showed his naked body to the gathered princes and princesses of Crescent Island, claiming himself to take equal delight in men and women. Do you think that because the historians call him a seducer, a harlot, a mere bauble? And I feel like there's that is the attempt to say, if you gender flip what is happening with Kokomi, it doesn't read as the stereotype that it is. But I, I, I think it just didn't. It didn't make that jump. It's one of the things that Joan and I have talked about before. His sense, the idea that certain plot elements are happening in order to maneuver us and manipulate us towards Cooney is awesome. And no matter what he does, the plot is going to prove that out. Well, yeah, I mean, so I justified my do, do, doing the, well, I love this book, so this problematic element I'm going to kind of make excuses for as just seeing this as yet another another set piece, another origin story, because there were there were so many of those scattered throughout the book, and and I felt like so many of those origin stories lean into cliche and lean into trope, and I said, okay, we are we are leaning into a trope. I'd rather not see it, and you know, I wish I wish something else, but <laughs> you know, that's that's a piece of going back to the notion that one of the things that is really neat about Grace of Kings is there it is unfamiliar and it is doing things that you don't see in a lot of other epic fantasy. One of the things that I really jumped on as something that I liked was the structural sort of okay, we're just going to take a minute and tell you an episode that's that. very cliched and tells you how the how the hero became who they are and I loved that and so when I read this Kikomi bit um especially because it spent so much time setting up the the beautiful, perfect, idyllic uh, city that she ruled over. I just said, all right, that's that's the piece of this that I'm going to be reading, is how how is this particular tale told, not the fact that this particular tale could probably do without being told at all. I'm, I'm pretty sure that on the list of Jonah's 10 things he remembers about this book, that city is number one, two, and three. No, the, uh, <laughs> the novel's writing up to the capital is number one, but the, city, the city's in my top five. <laughs> of the things that I remember. That that visual. Yeah. But but it is also one of the few places in the book where, where the text really does layer on the visual. Is there more to say about Kikomi? I have one more thing I can say about her. Mm -hmm. So first we meet Gia. And, you know, Gia is clearly so much smarter than any other man in the book. Right? <laughs> mm -hmm. and, 
And, and she's always got, she's like such a classic character, which is the woman who's devoted her life to, I, I saw this in graduate school and in the academic world all the time, the woman who has devoted her life to her husband's career. Uh-huh. And, I saw and, it going up the military. Yeah. Yeah. And she yeah. is that character. And so on the one hand, I was like, why couldn't the book have been about her? But okay, that's what that's what this book is, right? So I'll go with that. But with Kakomi was I felt like that was really for me because those two are really the only women in the first two thirds. Um, yeah. And so with Kakomi it was like, okay, now we really get hammered now with the, the sexism and the patriarchy of the society. And what for me happens with that is, is that then when he does bring in, start bringing in more women, and then when he brings in Gin, when the women do enter the story, you, you've set up so much expectations, and especially with Gin, that, when that great scene where she crosses the river, and that, there's that great scene where that dude is going like, oh no, we can't fight them because we can't cross the river because that would be bad against, you know, that, that goes against tradition. And furthermore, she's a woman, what could she do anyway? The, the text doesn't have to say anything more. It doesn't have to explain anything because we have seen this for two thirds of the book. We yeah. totally get that this would happen. I don't have any trouble believing that she can win victory after victory because these idiots see her as a woman who assumes she can't do anything. I think that this point about how Kokomi and Gia's stories reinforce the patriarchal society in Grace of Kings is really important. And I'm going to take a minute here to quote from a review by Anna of Book Smugglers that really hammered home for me why the absence of women in so much of Grace of Kings is a problem for so many readers. After acknowledging that the text challenges and questions the misogyny of the society, even in the early pages, and that there are many more women late in the book, she wrote, I cannot begin to tell you how much I resent, and a lot it appears, this, that the lives of women are not a long game. Sorry, I don't want to be an incremental woman. You know, one who appears only when it's convenient, after a point has been made, regardless of the obviously good intentions behind the choice. We're going to turn now away from Kokomi to some of the women who did appear later in the story, and two stories in particular that reflect each other quite nicely, and also show the breadth of the stories brought into Grace of Kings as the novel unfolds. I like Tamira because... She didn't have any ambitions. She leads a life that is very similar to what many women in many societies lead across the entirety of their lives. And these are lives that are so ignored, treated so much as if they don't matter. These, they're just like treated as disposable in narrative. You know, the invisible people who we just kind of throw away. The backgrounds. The background. But her journey yeah. of her, her grief and her trying to understand what it means and her hatred and how she turns it to tidying up after this man and then the whole thing that happens with her and Mata, I found it so interesting that he chose to, that that story was told at all. And I think it's important because I think that those stories are almost the ones that get left out more than any other stories of yeah. the narratives that we value and that we trumpet. And, and you know, actually the part I liked with, with Mira was that Lady Soto seemed to be the bookend. That you have Mira for whom everything seems to be on the surface. In other words, the narrative tells you right up, this is what's going on, this is her background, you know, this is what she's working through. And then you have the completely opaque one who is kind of performing the same sort of background expendable, but in a different household. These two acted as 
different facets of that same person in the background who normally would just be ignored. And I did like that part. I did think that was, in some ways, the more Mira got highlighted in terms of how she felt, the more intriguing I found Lady Soto for not getting any of that attention, yet still being in the the narrative, still very much playing a role. Yeah, I do think that they form bookends. And for me, I all, I always felt that there are all these hidden depths in Lady Soto that we're going to not find out until book two and that she knows a lot and that she's hiding a lot and that she has her own, her own plots and plans and schemes and long-term motives. Whereas Mira is just like trying to make sense of this, of how her life was destroyed by all yeah. this war. She's, she's a refugee, which is why I loved the, the thing where she just starts tidying up. This is like she's putting this, this life, her life has been torn apart. She's been completely torn out of all of the things that she had, where she was rooted to herself. And now she's just tidying up. And I just thought that was symbolically. And because she is a very surface character, you know, everything, you, you really know who she is and what her, her conflicts are. And there isn't a lot of depth in there. And I don't mean that in a negative way. I mean, that's just who she is. And I liked that contrast between the two women. And, and how they're, they're, what they're doing in each of those different households, because they're performing similar, but kind of different functions. Well, it's also, the interesting thing is Mira is, seems to be there to learn about herself and about what's going on and about what she wants to do, whereas Lady Soto is there to teach. Mm, that's that both of them are assessing the person they think is an opponent. Mira assumes that Mata is her opponent on some level. And Lady Soto walks through the door quite aware that Cooney in some ways is a potential opponent. And yet both of them end up making their peace and their resolution is Mira is very much, you know, I'll learn what comes next. And Soto's like, all right, you, you've, you've got the potential. Sit down, kid. I'm going to teach you a few things because you're going to need to know this. And Gia's response is, all right. It's a nice architectural move in terms of the structure of the story. Yeah. One of the reasons we invited Kate Elliott to help with this discussion, beyond the obvious delight a fish trap and I both took in being able to talk to one of our favorite authors and her general thoughtful reading, was that Kate posted a review of Grace of Kings that specifically engaged with the absence of women in the story, among other things. I'll link to that in the show notes at a dribble of ink. She had a few other critiques as well, and Kate and A. Fishtrap had a discussion of the distant islands that Cooney approaches with his men. Earlier, we brought up the way that stories like Kakomi's and Gia's reinforced the notion of the patriarchy that limited the society in Grace of Kings, and that that heightened the prominence of women later in the story. What follows is more along the lines of a missed opportunity, a discussion of alternative historical precedents that could have been contrasted with the overwhelming patriarchy of the empire of what might have been. For those who want to dive deeper into historical precedents, I'm going to link to another essay that Kate wrote and post an excerpt that didn't quite fit into this episode onto SoundCloud. Those will all be findable in the show notes. Actually, the two things that bugged me most were right at the beginning in the procession, where like the second thing you see is the fucking <laughs> Uh-huh. Just like, first thing. Yes. Oh my god. No, that's so Western to me. You know, it's not even Western. They wouldn't even have that in it. They had a procession in medieval Europe. I didn't even, they wouldn't have that. That's so modern to me. Why? I almost, I almost stopped right there. 
Mm-hmm. But then I'm like, no, I'm going to keep going. And then yeah. the other one that bugged me, man, if I'd been his editor, I would have told him to cut that because it doesn't even matter, right? It's just like, why? The other one was when they go to the islands for the first time. Oh, I yes. hadn't picked up on this until I read your review and comments. What bugged me was that he, I thought, as, as a reader, that here was an opportunity to suggest that this is a different society with different customs and that you could still have the dudes that were following be sexist, but that you could undercut it, right? With what, with them not quite getting things that are going on, but that we, the reader, could be reading. But instead, women are seen as tits and ass and people who bring food to the men. That was it. And it is so, the, the other thing is, is I thought there was like a suggestion this was kind of a more of an islander culture. And it was so not an islander culture, which just doesn't work like that. How's that? How, I mean, I, islander culture. I read at least a couple of reviews that have said they felt that they drew from Polynesian in, that he drew from Polynesian influences, and I just don't see that because, for one thing, in Polynesia you have definitely a culture with a lot of war going on and a warrior culture. And but first of all, it, it, someone. Someone was saying me that there's more, for instance, in Hawaiian culture, in ancient Hawaiian culture, and, and I'm not an expert on this, so um, if someone who actually knows, if a native Hawaiian who actually knows something hears me say things that are untrue, I hope that they will correct me. Uh, I've been told, for instance, that there were no taboos about sex or about having sexual relationships with people. I mean, in, in the puritanical sense that we see in uh, our culture, for example. But there were a lot of taboos about food. The other thing is, is that, that the nature of social relations is such that you see this also in Bronze Age Greece as compared to classical Athens Greece. The differences between the hierarchy of who are the nobles and who are the commoners is greater than the differences between the genders. So how the, oh. if you're an elite, if you're a chief, and whether you're male or female, you have, you know, in Hawaii, you would have mana. The example from, from Bronze Age speaks sharply to a, a man who, who speaks to him too familiarly, but he treats Penelope as an equal, even though it's, a, of course, a patriarchal society, but he treats Penelope as an equal because they're both nobles. And so therefore, they are above the commoners. And so in Polynesian society, you would see that the, the, the common people would have more, between the men and women, it, would be, it wouldn't have this gender divide in the same way. And, and instead, it's just like a mirror of what happens in the other culture where gender is the big divide. Mm-hmm. And the thing that twigged me about the islanders was actually something completely different. Oh. Which was the... These islanders, and, and it was more a missed opportunity, in that one of the things that fascinates me the most in reading Southeast Asian history is the way that each culture interacted with Western contact and include Arab contact in that, as well as Indian continental contact, and the changes that those had on the different cultures, and then the arrival of the colonizers. In this story, we have an emperor who united a bunch of different islands, right? He was basically an imperial dude who said, everybody is going to do this my way. So why is it that we travel out to the island and the islanders aren't like, screw you (laughs) and your continental colonizing ways? Why was it, oh, hey, dude, you know, come on over and let's all hang out? Because 
colonization, even for a short period of time, scars people. And and so the reaction that the islanders had to all be so friendly and welcoming just felt really contrived. Oh, see, my impression was that the Empire had never gone there. I got the impression that they'd had interactions. I thought that they had an interaction. I I wasn't it wasn't clear to me, or else I don't remember, whether they had conquered it or whether they had just come and said, Hey, we're a big empire now, won't you, you know? I got the sense that there was some level of contact interaction. But- but that at no point, I, I think that the island is Tanadu, and I don't think it had ever been conquered and absorbed into the empire. However, the other thing that you need to remember is that islands are not islands in this. I think Westerners, especially living within a continental landmass, are supposed to say Hawaii, where you might have uh, absorbed a slightly different view of things, is that. We tend to think of oceans as being vast expanses between land, when in fact, when you have island cultures, they think of the uh, the waters around them as like their front yard and their backyard. Is right. there no trade? They, you you know what's going on in your backyard. But that's a it's an excellent point. And do either of you remember how long it takes to sail there? The sun always set to the right of the ship as they sailed ever southward. Sometime later, so presumably at least a few days, they were at Tan Adu, the land of the savage cannibals, not a place for civilized men. Over the years, various states had made countless attempts to settle and subdue the island, but they'd always failed. So it took days to get there. It was not easy to get there, and there was clearly a level of hostility to people who tried to land, or at least that's what the text sets up before Kuni manages to land and talk his way into uh, being able to stay on Tanadu for a while. Just because, yeah, the Polynesian islands were in contact with each other, and, and of course, island chains that were relatively close together, even if even if you couldn't see the next island, if you could get there in a day or two or three or four, that was still considered a neighbor. Right, and this and is why I thought that there was such a chance here to, to show a different form of gender relationships right. than than the main archipelago and and that instead it just seemed to be a recapitulation of the same thing because even if the guys can't really see it you can still show it you know i want to add here it's so it's so funny for me because i really really never i don't like to criticize books um and i've reached a point in my life where i will only criticize a book if i really loved it yes agreed <laughs> The books that I really love are the ones that I criticize the most. I said at the beginning that this is a discussion of Grace of Kings, but it's also a broader discussion of the genre. We've talked about some specific characters, though our conversation on Gin Mazzotti never got much farther than what Kate wrote in her earlier review, a martial character she very much appreciated and enjoyed. We've talked more broadly about how much a text changes depending on who women are relating to and whose story is being told. As often happens, this discussion ranged from the fantastic elements and secondary world of Grace of Kings to analogs and historical precedents in our own world, and I'm going to close with another exchange along those lines. All, all I was going to say was the, the one problem with medieval history and Chinese history or any other history is this book is fantasy. It doesn't even take place in our world. There's, it, It's like that excuse just doesn't hold water to say, oh, well, my ahistorical view of, of that time period is X. And I'm like, but you're writing fiction. Make it up. You, you, you know, and it's an interesting this, this <laughs> thing about, well, there's dragons. Why can't, why do we also have to have yeah. patriarchal sexism? And I, like, I'm, first of all, I totally agree with that. But even, but this is my other thing is, even, even 
if you just take actual history, you can see that the stereotypes yes. people right. have about history are totally wrong. You don't even need the, the, the element of saying, well, it's just a fantasy. Because yeah. we have examples of women doing every possible thing in real history. So, you know, between those two elements, A, it's a fantasy and you have dragons and magic, and B, it's historically women did everything that you yeah. could possibly want to do. You just have to make the choice to put them in. You have to be able to see them. And ultimately, the problem becomes is we, we get, and I include myself in this because I struggle with this all the time, we have to get past that own, that that veil, that obstacle, that gate that we are shut behind. And we have to say, hey, wait, I can open this up. As it turns out, there are many gates we are shut behind and many wonders visible to us when veils are removed. This has been a tough episode for me to fit together, since the roles of women in The Grace of Kings have been the most discussed and most criticized pieces of the book. If I were a better editor, I'd have mixed it better among the other episodes focused on Grace of Kings, the technology of silk punk, the marriage of Eastern and Western tradition, ideas of divinity, heroism and nobility, the techniques that mediate Orientalist reader expectations, and the heroic episodes interspersed throughout this gorgeously sprawling narrative. I'd like to thank Kate and A Fish Trap for lending their time and expertise to this discussion, and I'd like to reiterate the earlier statements that all three of us loved this book. We spent a lot of time discussing it, because it was wonderful and because it enchanted us in so many ways. We are all eagerly awaiting book two. I'd like to thank you listeners for sticking with these discussions. There have been quite a few of them. <laughs> this is it, barring one possible future episode talking to Ken about his own book to see what else we've missed along the way. So thanks for coming along on this journey. Thanks for listening to Cabbages and Kings. Please let me know what you think of the show. On the website, cabbagesandkings.audio, there's a feedback form and also a page if you'd like to be on the show. Or just go ahead and email contact at cabbagesandkings.audio. I'm on Twitter at jsuttonmorse. The show is on Twitter at kingcabbagecast. Let me know what you enjoyed, what books you're reaching for now, what I can do to make the show better. The website also has an occasional blog, my running tweets on books I'm reading, and importantly, a link to the RSS feed for this show, which you can also find on iTunes and wherever fine podcasts are aggregated. Until next time, enjoy your reading.